This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Land, Sea, and Sky. Since 1940, birders have turned to the optics experts at Land, Sea, and Sky to purchase just the right pair of binoculars for their birding adventures. The shop has hundreds of binoculars and spotting scopes in stock, an industry-leading 90-day return policy, and experienced staff to lend you a helping hand. Stop by their shop in Houston or visit them anytime at LandSeaSkyCo.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I want to start this episode off with sort of a a throwback to an issue we talked a fair bit about at the end of last year, and that is the proposed border wall in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas and how it stands to impact birding opportunities in that part of the ABA area. Certainly one of the most fascinating and exciting birding locales in the United States, and I know we have a lot of Canadian birders that travel there and love it just as much as well. You may remember that one of the original plans for the region was for the federal government to construct a border wall across the levee at Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge, the location, I mean, it's known as the crown jewel of the National Wildlife Refuge system. It's one of the best remaining patches of native valley habitat, an area that has seen so much of that habitat lost in recent decades. Uh, The construction would have blocked off probably blocked off the entire refuge to birders. Would have been very bad for wildlife movement in general. Certainly some birds can fly over the wall, but many, many cannot or won't actually more likely. And there are of course a lot of special mammals and reptiles and whatnot without the ability to fly that this would have impacted. And as such, the ABA adamantly opposed this policy, this border wall at this spot. And we encouraged a lot of birders to contact their representatives and make their voices heard. Uh, There were also a great many local activists opposing the wall. They held rallies and marches. All of these things worked. Subsequent plans for the border wall excluded Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge. Everyone involved, including lots of birders from around the U.S. and Canada, deserve a ton of praise for the success. So, you know, great news, right? Well, yes and no. Subsequent plans for the border wall now consist of a single, nearly unbroken barrier through all of the lower Rio Grande Valley, with the notable exception of, you guessed it, Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, but blocking off a great many other birding sites, notably Benson State Park, another of the valley's jewels. This this whole thing sort of reminded me of that Twilight Zone episode, The Monkey's Paw, you know, where the, the people get three wishes and they come true, but not in the way that you expect them to. So, so birders, you know, monkey's paw in hand, wished for Santa Ana to be spared, and the single finger on the monkey's paw slowly bends towards the palm. And the plan comes out that the walls off everything else. The irony is not lost on us. So here we go again with the notable wrinkle uh, that Benson is a state property and under the purview of Texas state government, to which those of us not in Texas have little sway. So that is sort of frustrating. But here, here's the light at the end of the tunnel. It was reported last week that leadership in the U.S. Senate, at least, have decided to hold off any discussion about appropriating funds to the border wall, which is likely to be extremely contentious, until after the elections are over this fall. There are, they are definitely kicking the can down the road a few months. What this means for birders who are interested in making their voices heard, it means that you can do so with your votes. This is, in fact, the best opportunity to do so. So I would urge birders who are interested in this issue, who care about the ability to access these places in the future, to figure out where 
the candidates and the incumbents come down on it and take that into consideration when making your decisions. I'll be honest, this, this actually feels more doable than the fight to save Santa Ana. And we, well, you all accomplished that. You know, I bird, I vote, you bird, you vote. Make sure you get both in this fall. On the show today, Dr. Drew Lanham, academic, poet, bird watcher, advocate for diversity in nature, is with me to talk about his path to birds and hope how hopefully we can replicate that passion in communities that we've historically had trouble reaching. It's a great discussion. He's a fascinating individual. Uh, he'll join me after this week's Rebirds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of July, first part of August 2018. It's stint season, at last, the time of year when southbound shorebirds are occasionally joined by calidrids from the other hemisphere. We have a few to report. In New Jersey, an apparent redneck stint was discovered in Atlantic County, though unfortunately not refound. Better luck was had in Massachusetts, where a sharp-looking ABA Code 4 little stint was seen in Barnstable County. And not to forget the West Coast, another little stint was photographed in Santa Clara, California. It's amazing the extent to which birders have gotten better at identifying these old-world sandpipers. There are certainly more of them every year. In Alaska, the state's second record of red-footed booby was photographed at sea near Agatu Island in the Aleutians. These sorts of records that make you realize that Alaska is pretty much a straight shot north from Hawaii, where this bird almost certainly originated. Nothing in the way of first records this time around, but it continues to be a remarkable year for a vagrant roseate spoonbills and wood storks. New York is the latest with a record of the former, and both West Virginia and Pennsylvania had young individuals of the latter in the last week. This was a very short roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. And you can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare, or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA bird alert. Birding has been described by my guest today, no less, as one of the whitest things you can do. And it's it's hard to argue with that. And one of the issues that the birding community has been reckoning with for the last several years, especially, has been our relative lack of diversity, at least in terms of black and brown faces in the field and how we can encourage a broader coalition of nature enthusiasts to join us and to share that joy of birding. Dr. Drew Lanham is, among other things, a distinguished professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University at Clemson, South Carolina. He sits on the boards of both National Audubon and the American Birding Association, and his memoir, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, was published last year. He was also profiled in the August-September issue of Garden and Gun magazine about his experience as a black professional in the birding world. Thanks, Drew, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me, Nate. Glad to be here. So let's kind of start at the beginning, you know, your origin story. Tell me how it was that birding in nature first got a hold of you. Well, I, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of nature and nurture, right? I, I grew up rurally, which is hard not to do in South Carolina, to be honest about it. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the, of the 70s, really. And so Edgefield, South Carolina is where uh, my taproot was put down, um, where I was uh, sort of uh, hatched and fledged, I guess you could say. And so, you know, that environment, of course, led to some of some of who I am just being in the woods and having the opportunity to be uh, in nature sort of constantly when you're going from I was going from my grandmother Mamatha's place to my parents place. There were open fields and woods and overgrown ditches full of bobwhite quail. And 
and so yeah that was that was a part of it and then when i would i would get to my parents house finally after wandering through all of that there were only two and a half television channels to sort of distract me and so you know that was important and then having having parents both of whom um, were science teachers was a critical portion of that um, of that nature and nurture and so they encouraged all of us um, me and my my three siblings they encouraged us all to explore and then I think a critical part of that was that we depended on nature so much I mean we were farmers and so almost all of the food that ended up on the table was stuff that we grew from the cattle and the hogs and the chickens um, to the vegetables uh, in the garden and the fruits in the orchards and picking wild blackberries for blackberry cobbler. And um, my father occasionally hunted, not a whole lot, but occasionally hunted. He fished more than he hunted. All of our water came from the springs around us. And so it was this total sort of immersion that brought me to that place. But birds, man, birds were the you know, they were the proverbial cherry on top of the, 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 the cake. I, I guess they'd be the tanager at the top of the tree um, in this case, and that they were, birds were going places that I wanted to go. They were doing things that I wanted to do, especially flying. I, I dreamt of being a pilot and that failing, I, I thought that maybe the next best thing was to was to be a bird. And so I spent a lot of time climbing up in trees, not just to see birds, but launching myself out of trees and off of roofs to, to try to fly. I always say that Wiley Coyote was great inspiration for me because <laughs> the TV <laughs> that I did watch, I watched Wiley Coyote ingloriously fail um, at, at capturing the Roadrunner which, which incidentally, I knew could fly, but that would rather run. I knew the Roadrunner could fly, and I always wished on those cartoons that that the Roadrunner would. But um, <laughs> so Wiley e. Coyote, seeing him fail time and time again, I thought that I would be able, in some of my wanderings, to overcome Wiley's failures, and so I tried to fly. And so birds were were sort of a a conduit for imagination, but also, you know, I encountered them every day, every day they were around me. So, you know, it was almost, uh, I think in some ways inevitable that I ended up where I am. Yeah. And you turned it into your, your profession in addition to being a personal interest. How did that, how did that come about? Really? It was a, you know, it was sort of a long, a long journey for me. I, um, you know, being a, a kid of color, being a black kid who was decent at math and science, everyone thought that that I should be an engineer because at the time, um, in the STEM disciplines as they're known now, science, technology, engineering, and math, that if you were good at math and science, then of course you wanted to be an engineer because it paid well. <laughs> and so I went to school on an engineering scholarship, a full four-year ride, uh, DuPont scholar, majoring in mechanical engineering because I was told, well, if you want to do the bird thing, you know, you're going to need money. So why not make money as an engineer? And then you can do the bird thing on the side. And so I tried that for about three and a half years at Clemson where I work now. And, uh, and it was really a, a sort of slow and painful death 
um, heart-wise for me, really, because, yeah. I, you know, I was doing okay, Nate, but, I mean, I was very dispassionate about being an engineer, and I think the last thing you want in this world is a dispassionate mechanical engineer who's responsible for, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. designing things that you ride in or fly in or uh, drive over, so... So, yeah, I, you know, all of that time, I still had these dreams, at least of being immersed in nature and birds. And so that long sort of circuitous migratory route that I was taking towards being an ornithologist finally ended, ended up in me changing my major to zoology and uh, eventually falling under the tutelage of Dr. Sidney Gotro. Oh, yeah, the the radar bird guy. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, you know, sort of the godfather of radar ornithology. (laughs) And Sid was great about um, taking us out birding. There there was a group of grad students who um, I got to hang out with and spending time with them afield and learning, um, honing my birding skills was was new life to me. It was like being reborn. And so that's how I ended up here, you know, talking to you as a professional birder and ornithologist. In what ways has, has being a, a Black American influenced the trajectory of your birding career? Well, it's, um, you know, birding is, um, is life to me. It's, it's part of, of just who I am. And so because... I am, you know, proudly in this, this black skin and as a, as a black American, it, it affects me in some ways because it's the life that I live. The life that I live is, is impacted in many ways. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always making references to range maps, Nate, because I think it's instructive for us to think about where we are in sort of space and time, but also in social context and, and thinking about that range map and being a black birder, it, it means that there are, are, are issues and situations that present themselves differently to me than they might, um, you know, a white birder um, or, or someone else. And so, you know, instances of, uh, of bias and racism um, that present themselves and sometimes it's issues that you think are presenting themselves, but they may not present themselves. And so right. um, I spend time uh, at times thinking about things that other folks might not have to think about. So, you know, for example, you know, I, I write in my, in my memoir about doing a breeding bird survey and having a stop near um, a house where there was a Confederate flag. And you know, I mean, it's the breeding bird survey. It's not like I can move the point. It's not like I can skip <laughs> yeah, the point. Right. And so instead of being able to concentrate solely on the birds that I see or hear in that uh, span of time that I'm doing that, that point, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the flag and, and why someone would have it there and whether or not I'm supposed to be there. And if they find me out there with binoculars and a clipboard, birding what happens to me and 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 so you know that's that's real and and having that present itself sort of time and time again and not just here in the south but in other places you know being being on the national bison range in montana and just sort of on the one hand being just absolutely stunned by the beauty of 
the bitter roots and hearing Western metal larks and long billed curlews. But then on my way back to Missoula, having a huge truck roll up behind me with the biggest Confederate flag I've ever seen, um, waving from the bed of the truck gave me pause um, and sort of for the moment anyway, erased all the birds and the bison from my brain. So, you know, that's, it, it impacts me in sort of those kind of uh, horrifically spectacular <laughs> ways. Um, but then in, in sort of more subtle ways too, I think you, you would love for what we do as birders to, to be more diverse, to be more inclusive and um, I think that's happening in, in some ways, but, you know, it's when birding, when it's not just your, your, your avocation, but your vocation, and it's all wound up into who you are and what your life is, then you're going to be who you are and not only how you appear, but sometimes um, what you think and, and, and your lifestyle can be impacted by you know, those other portions of your life. So it's hard for me these days to separate being a birder from being Drew. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, some of these ideas are, are ones that you've sort of expressed in a piece you wrote for Orion magazine a few years ago, Nine Rules for the Blackbird Watcher, sort of a darkly funny exploration of race and how it affects birding in ways that, you know, someone like me, a white birder, I don't always think about interactions with with law enforcement you know are not that uncommon it's a hassle for me it's something to laugh about later even but it's sort of existential for you yeah wow yeah it it, it is and um you know certainly certainly appreciate the the job that um you know that ethical law enforcement most of the folks out there do who are, are trying to keep us safe and to serve and protect so to speak but then yeah, there are those incidences. I'm I am constantly thinking. I tell people I have a I have a police cruiser gestalt. Man, I can pick them out in the dark. <laughs> the headlights, right, the yeah. stance. I sort of know it's sort of like right. you know. I would imagine that um, you know backyard birds, my Carolina chickadees and tufted titmice. They kind of know where the sharpies and the coops are. They 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 kind of <laughs> have a sense. That's a good metaphor. You know that in that yard over there. That if you're slow or you linger too long, you know, at the tube feeder, that bad things could happen. Um, and and so that's that's more energy that maybe I have to spend as a person in my skin and my black skin than someone might have to spend in uh, thinking about otherwise. So, again, that's why I say it's it's something that I constantly think about. And this, again, this range map context that I'm writing about now in, in the new work, I, I'm constantly, I'm literally checking out the maps. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand where it is that not only I am, but where I'm going. Um, is it safe for me to go in this place or that place? Um, do I go alone or do I try to make sure that I take a white friend along with me so that, um, so that the flock is a you know is that we're watching out for one another so th those are all kinds of things that um i think about and that nine rules for the black bird watcher that piece was i i, I don't think i ever expected it to go sort of as far and wide as it did but i, I remember 
the editor from Orion writing me and asking me if I would consider doing a piece. And of course I said, sure. And, and she said, well, I'll give you, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, to get this done. And 45 minutes later, I'd sent her the draft. And she was sort of amazed that I had done it that quickly. And I said, you know, this is, these are all things that I've been thinking about and really sort of things that I live. Yeah. It's, it, it was written as, uh, you know, really, really sort of hyperbole and, 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 and in the way that uh, you write those sorts of things, but they're all things that I'd thought about and things that I'd lived. Yeah. Do you think that the relative lack of representation among non-white people in the birding community is a function of birding as an avocation, or is it just sort of a, you know, a broader sort of societal issue that spills over into birding? I, you know, I think it's, it's broader, you know, um, I, I think it's a broader issue that sort of spills over. Um, and, and it's not to say that, that there aren't things that we could do or that have been done in birding that are, that are culpable for the spillover. You know, there's, I think there's, there are always ways to prevent, to present dams of, of inclusion, sort of, um, and, you know, inclusion, it means to let others in, to invite them in, in ways. Um, but you know, there, there are barriers that have been there sort of subconsciously, I think, for birding that that now I hope that we're becoming more aware of. I know with with ABA we're we're trying to do that and getting some of those barriers down. And I think some of those, for example, have been in thinking about birding and expanding it to, to different communities, obviously, but making making birding relevant to who it is that we are as human beings. So, you know, We've enjoyed birds for as long as we've we've been around for all the millions of years um, that that Homo sapiens and and in all of our forms have have been around. When when we think about birds again, you know my sort of origins and thinking about flight and being inspired by bird song and bird flight. People have been inspired by by birds for all of our history um, and before that. So. You know, I think lowering some of the barriers include broadening birding to help us understand how birds interact with the environment and what they tell us about the environments that we live in. So I, I can't necessarily, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to Flint, Michigan, for example, and try to convince folks who don't have clean drinking water in some communities that they ought to be watching birds before they consider clean drinking water. Um, but, but the issue is that we're sharing water, that, that birds and humans are sharing water. We're sharing air, we're sharing soil and, you know, all of those environmental issues that we're facing now that are quite frankly, um, are under assault really, um, are all things that we should be concerned about. And so if we're watching birds, whether for sport or for the understanding how our lives are going to be impacted, birds become important and critical things to all of us. I mean, Rachel Carson told us that all those years ago. And so the, the way that I'm trying to expand birding anyway is for, for that relevance to move beyond just, you know, the joy of, of listening and the joy of watching, which is soul food for many of us to move it to this, this, this different realm of, um, of understanding that everybody has a bird story and that those bird stories make those creatures relevant to our lives 
and yeah. and that somehow that if we have this common plight in our lives, birds and humans, then people are going to care more for birds. They're going to care more for the habitats that birds exist in because those habitats and the environments are things that we share, clean air, clean water, clean soil. And that if we fight for those things, guess what? There are more birds to watch and there are more places to watch exactly. birds. And there are more people watching birds with this intent of us being together and sharing this, this earth that we're on. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, I think we can take it as a given that, you know, most birders really want birding to be more inclusive, but don't always know how to help or act, you know, as we seek to sort of, I don't know, for, for lack of a better term, you know, kind of expand the franchise of birding to, to more diverse communities of people. What do you think birding groups or, or local communities can do to sort of appeal to those communities that we've sort of historically had trouble reaching? Well, great question. And that's a, you know, it's a hard question. The first thing is to, um, is for us to put the binoculars down for a minute or two and really see where we are and, and understand what's around you and understand that birding can happen anywhere and that sometimes um, it's not just birding. Sometimes it's bird watching and literally bird watching, watching a single bird, <laughs> right. you know, helping someone understand or not even helping them understand, understanding how they see birds, I think is a better way to go about it. Almost no one ignores a cardinal. You may call it a red bird. And for the sake of appreciation, the name isn't important at that moment. Just that it's this, this brilliant thing, this brilliant living thing that just flies through your line of sight. So when, when people who don't have long life lists or know the proper names for every bird, um, when, when they see the bird and revel in the bird, revel in the bird with them, understand how they see the bird and how the bird fits into um, their world and their environment. And, and so then we become watchers along with them and not people who seek to lead them in the direction that we would have them go. So, so that means expanding the definition of what birding is. And, and again, I sort of go back and forth. I, you know, right over my office door, a grad student from long ago gave me this, this uh, needlepoint and it says bird watcher and I'm a bird watcher, you know, I'm a birder, but I'm also a bird watcher. And so I think expanding what birding is and giving folks, um, the permission, um, to come in, um, opening that door and saying, you know what, we are, we are a big tent and there's room for you. If you're sitting in your backyard, feeding birds and, naming them as you would and naming them, you know, Charlie, the Cardinal and, and Tracy, the titmouse, or whether you are um, watching um, birds uh, in an urban park and uh, pigeons are a part of your everyday, that begins to broaden the conversation of appreciation. And once you begin to broaden that, Nate, I think you begin to invite people in in different ways, you know, that you can that you can be out there in chucks and uh, skinny jeans and a T-shirt and you're fine, that you don't have to have truly specialized equipment to do it. 
that you don't have to break the bank for binoculars, that there are programs out there and people who will lend you binoculars or give you binoculars, let you use theirs so that suddenly the world becomes closer in all sorts of ways. So, you know, there's an old saying in wildlife um, education, and maybe it goes beyond that, but it's, uh, you know, reach one, teach one kind of deal. And if we can encourage our fellow birders and bird watchers to find someone that's different than you, maybe they're younger, maybe they're older, maybe they're of a different gender or non-gender designation, maybe they're browner, <laughs> maybe they're blacker, maybe they're something or different or than you are, seeing the world through, trying to see the world through that person's eyes and converging range maps, I think is a useful exercise and it's something that we can do on a daily basis without thinking about, wow, how do I get thousands of more people into birding? Or how do I get thousands of more people just into appreciating nature? No, turn that on its head and think about how can I be with one other different person in some place that we can share birds, that we can share nature, that we can talk about things that unite us as opposed to dividing us. And in that way, I think birding and bird watching has so much potential to be such a healing force for so much of what's disruptive right now in our world. It's clear that, you know, for you, that birding is something that is you know, foundational, this, this defining part of who you are, so that you're willing to put up with potentially dangerous or uncomfortable situations, you know, dealing with the hassle. How do we make the case that birding is worth it to a diverse coalition of people? Maybe you've sort of already answered this question, but, you know, I always sort of feel like, you know, we're asking people to do these potentially uncomfortable, maybe even dangerous things. You know, how do we get them to push through? How do we get them to, to help make that better world? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great question again, Nate. And I think, again, for me, um, it comes down to, you know, there, there, we, you know, we, we talk, we hear a lot these days about the Constitution and, and what that means. Um, and I always think what stands out to me are these inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, birds are life to me. Um, they, they are exemplars of liberty, and I'm not happy without them. So, you know, in, in that trifecta, then, all of our lives are bound up. And understanding that their lives are our lives that as birds are free and abundantly so, that there's a better chance for us to be free and abundantly so. And that hearing birds sing, seeing birds fly, makes people happy in ways that, I mean, that's that three-letter word of awe. If we're willing to give up those things, if we're willing to give up, you know, our lives, our freedom, and our chances at happiness then we're willing to give up birds. And I, for one, am not willing to do that. And most of the people I know, whether they call themselves birders or not, aren't willing to give up on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And all three of those things are bound up in birds. All you got to do is step back for a minute and watch, watch a, watch a kid watching a bird fly or seeing 
um, someone who's learned how to use their binoculars, seeing some brilliant thing close up and watching a bird sing, hearing that bird belt out its song, you know, a prairie warbler song climbed to the top of a chromatic scale from, you know, the top of a young loblolly pine tree and watching somebody watch that, that's joy. So it is, to me, it's foundational. So, you know, as a, as a black man in this country, um, <laughs> you know, there, there are days that I, I feel like um, I walk out of the house, I'm putting my life on the line. Well, I'm not going to cloister myself in my home because of the risk of living. Life is a risk. Take it. The alternatives aren't as aren't as grand. So, again, I see all that through, you know, from the the heightened vantage point of birds. And so I'm still imagining life from this altitude that allows me to get above and beyond some of the the stuff that's not so nice on the ground. And I can get above that, even if just for a little bit, and it helps me get on to that next moment in the day. And before you know it, I've lived another day and there's another chance at happiness and liberty and I'm all good. All right. My guest is Dr. Drew Lanham, academic writer, birder. The link to his profile in Garden and Gun Magazine is in the show notes. You can also find his memoir, The Home Place, wherever the best books are sold. Thanks for chatting with me, Drew. This was this was great. Yeah, man. I, this is this is this has been great. I'm I'm just I'm really thankful for the opportunity, Nate, to um, to talk about it. It's um, yeah. on this end, it's hard sometimes to when I start talking about it to to stay in control of my emotions because birds birds are birds mean a lot. I know they mean a, a lot to you and to our friends um, out there. So. Um, I want to do all of, all I can to to keep birds around and to keep um, the people around who appreciate birds now and in the future to make that audience grow. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Thank you, Nate, very much. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to help support it is to join the ABA. We are a membership organization and we create a lot of free resources for birders around the U.S., Canada, and beyond. Members also receive birding and birders guide magazines, discounts to partners, and the opportunity to join us at ABA events all around the world. But most, you are helping to support the birding community throughout the ABA area, and for that, we thank you. Get more information at aba.org join. If you're feeling especially helpful, leave a rating or review of this podcast at Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast dispensary you prefer. Your comments and ratings help others find us and expand our reach. And don't forget to tell your birding friends about this show if you enjoy it and you think they would too. Thanks to those of you who have done that already. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's adapting a Twilight Zone episode about a birder who never has time to get out until they're the last human on Earth after a nuclear disaster, but the only binoculars left on the planet are 2X opera glasses that are slightly out of alignment. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has an idea to slightly change that Twilight Zone episode about the kid who can read your thoughts uh, to one where if you're not thinking about how the red poles should be lumped, he can magically wish you off to a Bering Sea Island where the winds are constantly out of the east. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who are working on a spec script called The Twitcher at 20,000 Feet about a man who finds a Japanese merlet and a ton of birders come out to see it, but it disappears from view every time he tries to describe where it is until no one believes him and he screams into the void, I am not 
not a stringer. You can find us online at ABA.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We have a screenplay for an episode about a birder driving several hours on a Twitch who keeps encountering the same sketchy hitchhiker with a large spotting scope at regular intervals and slowly loses her mind. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you.